0: Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to, okay, I've lost, okay. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God, good morning everybody. For those I haven't met, my name's Kyle, I'm an assistant pastor here, and I am very loud right now. At least everyone can hear me. (laughs) It's been a lifelong dream of mine to visit Israel. Um, Even better, not just visit Israel, but take a tour with a certain professor who, uh, in their more deviant grad school years, was a bit of an Indiana Jones type. I remember hearing stories of of this professor visiting Qumran after hours, sneaking in uh, into one of the caves that was being excavated. I mean, come on, that's pretty cool. Uh, These days, a lot of the archaeological wonders of the world um, are heavily guarded. Uh, You could never actually get near them. I remember visiting Stonehenge with the expectation that I'd be able to go right up to it, stand next to the rock formation, look straight up and get a sense of the magnitude and scale of the rock and maybe take a selfie leaning against it. But in fact, there's a barrier and a security that prevents you from walking right up. I mean, no wonder, recently um, in the news, a man dressed up as an elderly lady jumped out of a wheelchair and attempted to smash the bulletproof glass of the Mona Lisa. And then he proceeded to smear cake on the glass and throw roses everywhere, all before being tackled by security. I mean, apparently this painting has survived numerous defacing attempts throughout history. Why has it survived? Well, the security. Um, So the national treasure fan in me was curious about the most secure locations in the United States. Um, that is the most heavily guarded, least accessible places to the general public. And so I Googled it. I have a top 10 list, and I wonder what you think. What are some of the places on that list? It's okay to call out. Congress. What was that? Fort Knox. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Constitution Building. A lot of these places are military stuff, intelligence stuff. The, the number one most guarded place is Fort Knox. And then Cheyenne Mountain, which I, I'd never heard of before looking it up. Um, the White House, Area 51, Air Force One, so on. Now this is certainly not to brag, but I have one experience to the contrary, of, of being able to cross uh, beyond the public access line, if you will. One summer during college, I, I was interning in Washington, D.C and I was doing youth ministry at a church down there, and I got to stay for the summer with a, a coral reef scientist. Um, he was a deep sea, sea coral reef taxonomist. That means he, he named, um, he told me about half of the known deep sea corals in existence. So if you're ever wondering why a coral reef is named like someone's dog, I have a dollar to say that I know the guy responsible for that. Uh, During the summer, I got to take part in an informal Bring Your Church Intern to Work Day. And so I got to enter the Smithsonian through the back entrance, and we parked in this special spot, got buzzed into two areas that that became progressively less fit for the the general public eye. And and once we made it into his workspace, my host pulled out a tray of corals that, that had not yet been named in any scientific journal yet. And he actually put one in my hand. And then I smeared cake on it. I'm just kidding. It was amazing. It was amazing. Um, I've been reflecting this week about the, the, the principles of distance and how they affect our lives, um, how, how there's something so sacred about drawing near to something, about how distance can actually serve to protect. I mean, if you've taken a long-distance road trip, you, you know the excitement of getting close to something, close to your destination. Um, And if you've been in a long-distance relationship, you know the heartache of separation. Um, You know, the Bible itself has a story. um, And that story can be told through the lens of distance and proximity. Nearness and distance and nearness. Um, I mean, perhaps the human condition might be imagined as as a, a reversal of magnetic polarity where what once attracted us now repels us, and what once repelled us now attracts us. In our passage today, uh, Paul calls to mind the the imagery of the temple. And the temple was built with some of these um, proxemics in mind. The the temple was built with an outer gate for the Gentiles, the Gentile court, and an inner court for for the Jews. Um, The temple also had a holy place and a holy of for anyone to visit on an ordinary occasion. I mean, while God is omnipresent, in a special way, his presence dwelt centrally in the temple, in that space where only the consecrated, only those who were cleansed and properly prepared in a special way, were safe to approach God. In our passage, Paul uses the concept of proximity, far and near, divisions and barriers, drawing to mind the temple and its structure to explain the benefits of the gospel. And coincidentally, that's how I'm going to divide my sermon today. Once far, now near, and now what? Once far, now near, and now what? I mean, let's begin with far, with distance and separation. Verses 11 and 12 highlight how far the Gentiles were from God before Jesus. Paul states in verse 12 that the Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel, which is a simple fact. But it also says they were foreigners of the covenant of promise, which is a little bit more interesting. That is to say, they were ethnically separated, but they also were not beneficiaries of the promises of God through the covenant of Abraham. Genesis teaches us that the pathway to salvation in Christ came through God's dealings with one nation— from one family, promises made to one person. And then through Moses, he made promises for a thousand generations of Israelites who obey him. These weren't promises announced to any and everybody. These were an exclusive and exclusionary um, promises. These, these were exclusionary in nature. It's like, it's like getting an acceptance letter from college, right? This promise is that you have the ability to enroll and it isn't for your friends, this is just for you. While, while it is an, it's odd to phrase it this way, your friends are foreigners to this letter of promise that you've received. So we can understand the difference, right? Between a difference in ethnicity, it means alienation from a covenant. I mean, the children of Asia Minor, they weren't learning about Abraham and his God. And if they were, they weren't learning about him in an exclusive sense. Most people of the time were polytheists. They believed in more than one God. They believed in regional deities. It was respectful to visit local temples and pay tribute to gods so as to not offend them and to not offend the people. And arguably, there was a pathway to conversion in, in Judaism, but it was, it was rare. Um, conversion meant giving up your culture. It meant giving up your customs, um, your family practices. It meant rejecting polytheism and the notion of regional deities, which at the time, those were ingrained beliefs. We have examples of conversion to Judaism. Rahab, Ruth were two, But they were truthfully rare, woefully rare. Paul goes on to say that without these covenants, the Gentiles were without hope. And that's not to say the Gentiles didn't have things they hoped for. Um, the things they didn't pay uh, heed to, I mean, hope for their, their, their pantheon of gods to provide them with, just that they did not participate in the worship of the true God of the universe and the promises that are linked to his dealings with Abraham. I mean, hope is inextricably linked to the promises of God. God promises, and our hope is for the fulfillment of those promises. It, it's hope... Um, It's the sort of hope that comes when you take God seriously and you take God at his word. The hope that God will dwell again with his people, that they'll be safe in the land, um, that that there's a God-secured future that's in his hands. That's the hope that Paul's talking about. I mean, now, now for Gentiles, this meant when they approached the temple, there was a degree of separation. Various boundaries stood in the way of nearness to God's holy presence. Two of them are mentioned in this passage, two barriers. The first is circumcision, right? Circumcision is mentioned in verse 11. It's an external marker that distinguished the Hebrews as heirs of God's promises. And second, in verse 15, knowledge of and obedience to the law and its commands and regulations. Now, because separation, um, uh, there, because of the separation within the structure of the temple, a, a dividing wall separated. Um, let, me, let me start that over. So because of these realities, the temple was constructed in a particular way with an, an outside court that was further away from the center holy of holy place where God dwelt, an outer court for the Gentiles and an inner court immediately surrounding God's dwelling place. Perhaps someone from Asia Minor was traveling and wanted to pay homage to the God of Israel. Well, they do that in the outer court which was fitting um barriers as much as they exclude and i want you to hear this barriers can protect we know of instances in scripture where people accidentally touched the ark of the covenant or or they went into the holy of holy places and they were killed on the spot and i believe these were not as punishment but these are the natural consequences of encountering god's holiness remember his words to moses on mount sinai you cannot see my face for no one can see my face and live. This is a practical, not a punitive matter, which was resolved at the time by, by anthropomorphically showing his back to Moses. I imagine the, the reason the general public is excluded from entering into the back of the Smithsonian or the Louvre is to protect the artifacts, um, which, which are rare and valuable enough to, to want to conserve and to want to steward. But of course the difference between the Smithsonian and the temple is that the barriers at the Smithsonian protect the artifacts. The barriers in the temple were meant to protect the Gentiles, the people coming in. Not not protecting the artifacts, protecting the people. I want you to consider that the gospel achieves two things. On the one hand, we're told that Christ destroys the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that separated us from God. I mean the good news can be stated this way as it is in verse 13 you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of christ but on the other hand not only does christ remove the barrier he actually makes it safe to approach god christ makes the need for a barrier obsolete the ba- the, the barrier need no longer exists because christ in christ we are washed by his blood I think I grew up with a very um, Lutheran understanding of salvation, which was deepened when I became a a Reformed Christian. I saw salvation through a forensic uh, legal framework, where I was forgiven of my sins because I accepted Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. Righteousness was the absence of sin's corruption. I mean, this uh, this passage attests to something deeper than that, to, to our mystical union a spiritual marriage, a bond of the believer and Christ, a mutual indwelling, Christ indwelling in us and us dwelling in him. The difference that this makes is, not, is that, that we're not merely blank slates with our sins canceled out. No, instead, because we're engrafted into Christ's body, having been, been made ours, we are made sharers in the gifts which have been endowed to him. We're righteous, um, as we read in verse 16, in one body through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That, that difference that little word makes, in one body. And in verse 15, it speaks of a new humanity. That is in fact the body that Christ incorporates into himself. The church is called the body of Christ for a reason. I mean, the, the consequence of, of union with Christ is nearness, right? You cannot get closer than united, right? I mean, this is the language of marriage. Our our passage speaks to to a change in position, a change in status. Read, Read verses 19 and 20 with me. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. from foreigners and strangers to fellow citizens, members of God's household. I mean, nearness means being one with Christ and the benefits of righteousness being applied in full. There's no longer a wall constructed to protect you from encountering the holiness of a God too great, too consuming because Christ has brought his church into himself. I mean, it is good to be near to God Because we're safe in Christ. Boldly, we're instructed to approach the throne of grace. And I think that's why. Not just because we're blank slates, but because we belong in Christ. I think many of us live our lives, at least to some degree, operating on the assumption that God is distant. Um, Too distant to hear our words. Too distant to act when we pray. Too distant to involve himself in... Bill paying and meal planning and chore doing and dishwashing. I recall the, the writer, Brother Lawrence, a French monastic. Um, I remember when I think of him that our nearness to God is not dependent on his willingness, but on ours, our recognition. His nearness is a fact, it's not merely an invitation. The invitation we have in Scripture is to open the door. Let him in so that he can eat with us. Because we're in Christ, we're not simply invited to draw near. We, we simply are near. That is the fact. We were once far and now we are near. So now what? I'm gonna table most of the practical um, because the second half of the book of Ephesians cannonballs right into the practical. Um, for now, let, let's suffice to remember that this is bigger than just you, than just me. This is the vocation of the church we're talking about. The last two verses, 21 and 22, tell us of God's household. Read it with me. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The promise of this passage is for a new temple built within a community established in Jesus Christ, where God dwells by his Holy Spirit. Of course, Paul is replacing in our minds the image of the temple in Jerusalem with another temple, a dwelling place of God that exists in the community of believers. We are the temple. We are the temple. When we read temple in scripture when we read church in scripture we're not meant to think of a building old architecture we're we're meant to see a community we're meant to see a people church is not a superfluous add-on to the faith the challenge of this passage for many americans especially most of us uh, in this this post what we believe to be the height of covid context where the return to church has plateaued with a 20% drop in regular attendance. Um, The challenge is is seeing in this passage a faith that resists private spirituality. Um, As far as I can tell, Jesus still rates pretty high among Christians, but not so much the church. Many Christians would take a churchless faith if it was an option, what with it being um, many people's only day off on a Sunday, and all the problems that come with people and institutions. I mean, we can't assume these weren't present in the Ephesian church. I assume that part of the reason Paul calls the Gentiles to remember twice, in 11 and 12, that they were what they were formerly, um, and he highlights the temple structure with that word, hostility, I think it's, he's trying to win them over with this vision of unity uh, in Christ, I think probably for a reason. For me, when when I have this conversation, it's helpful to remember the big picture of Scripture. Um, We can so easily get lost um, in the forest and just see the trees. Um, God's purpose in this world is to bring everything, everything into its rightful place under Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, it describes the fall resulting in necessary distance from God, an existential estrangement resulting in no less than spiritual death. And while in this fall, our natural magnetism to God has been reversed, to flee from his presence, union with Christ means that that fallen magnetic polarity shifts back within us, where, where we're drawn again to worship, to worship God. I mean, that is a miracle. And God's mission is big scale, to reverse creation's polarity back towards worship of the Creator rather than the creature, and to bring everything into its rightful place under Christ. And God's first order of business was with a people established in Christ, that it would exist as a witness a witness um, both to God's work and a witness to the, to the reverse magnetism that still exists in the world to those powers and principalities. I mean, that is to say the church is a visible sign to the world that God's plan in creation is already underway. God has already started to restore all that is broken. And that's why the church exists. I mean, it is a testament. It is a witness to the world that God is at work. God's redemption is just as extensive as, his, as the reach of the fall. Everything that was broken, distorted, twisted, God plans to make new. That reconciliation is already set in motion in the creation of a new humanity in which Christ is dwelling. I mean, that's the church. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that. I want to be part of what god's doing i want to be part of that story because god is working in the world i want to be part of that community that serves as a witness to a creation that's being restored for the better and will one day be restored completely as we close i want to offer a series of invitations i want to invite you those who are far to hear God's call for nearness. I mean, in Christ, it is safe to approach God. God promises to be closer than a brother. Jesus promises to never leave, leave us until the end of the age. God wants to be near us. I want to invite you, those that are near to God, to hear God's call to community of worship established in Christ. That is where our spiritual marriage in Christ animates itself. He is the cornerstone which holds it all together. And I want to invite us as God's household, um, and that that involves people that don't ordinarily worship with us, to, to consider the work of our Father and join in it together. This, this creates not simply that, that inward magnetism, as if, as if we're coming to the church building itself, but no, actually, this means following God when he gathers us and following God when he sends us, going where God goes. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he calls us to do. We follow the magnet when he calls us, gathers us in to strengthen and encourage us, and when he sends us out to extend his love to the world, to be his witness. Um, It's hard to be seen in a church building. Nearness to God creates an oscillation of movement uh, in the world, uh, in and out. um, And it's for the sake of the world, gathering and sending, following where he leads. That's what I want to leave you with. Um, That's our call. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that when we trust in Christ, it is safe to approach you um, in your holiness, um, and it is good. Um, I thank you that you seek to restore all of creation, and you have begun that work. And I pray that you would lead us, um, lead us as a community, Lead us as a global church um, that we might do your will and make you known to the world. We pray this in Christ's precious name, Amen. amen.